everybody. Today, I'm going to be talking to John Verbaki. Um, we're going to discuss his book, Zombies in Western Culture. Here it is. And also his 50-part series, Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. We'll touch briefly on uh, Western society. Is it doomed? Definitely there's a crisis. Uh, we're going to talk about shortly some AI um, and other random talk topics. Would you like to live The David Bramante Show. Hey, John. Hi, David. Hey, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. So, uh, you know, I noticed on some of your podcasts, you've got an opening, which I normally hadn't done, but I want to copy from you is because it's tough. You have so many projects going right now and you have, uh, you know, pretty amazing background so it's tough for me to select what I think I should highlight for you so if you could just tell me a little bit about your background um, where you are you know kind of the main focus of some of your research that you're doing just to open it up sure um, I'm an associate professor of cognitive psychology and cognitive science at the University of Toronto I do work within cognition on the nature of intelligence <clears throat> rationality and consciousness and the core idea there is a theory I've developed called relevance realization and trying to integrate it with other major theories like predictive processing attachment theory uh, big five personality theory that's sort of uh, the, uh, the what you might call my cognitive scientific uh, work and how it overlaps with um, psychology uh, but I also as I was doing that work I got very interested in issues around foolishness and wisdom and also meaning and a sense of connectedness and sacredness and so <clears throat> i started to move into what you might call uh, in addition to the other work i mentioned a, a cognitive science of of religion and spirituality and trying to use that framework to understand um, what i call the meaning crisis understand ways in which it is expressed mythologically, understand it in terms of the symptoms that are being generated, understand it in terms of its underlying causation, both historically and cognitively. Um, and so I do a lot of work around that. I did a series called Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. I did a book uh, with Christopher Masterpietro and Philip Misovic, uh, uh, Zombies, what is Zombies in the 21st Century, uh, 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 and... Um, I do a whole bunch of other video series, uh, many of them dialogical in nature. Um, did one with Greg Enriquez on consciousness, did one with Greg and Chris on the nature and function of the self, did one with Greg and, uh, uh, which was that one? Uh, Greg and Zach Stein on transformation, doing one with Greg Enriquez and Gary Hovanesian on uh, psycho, psycho, psychopathology and well being, as we call it. I have a bunch of running series, uh, did a series on mysticism and cognitive science with Zevi Slavin, uh, did one with Zevi Slavin and Guy Senstock on um, dialogue and Martin Buber. Um, I have a bunch of ongoing conversation partners, um, uh, Sebastian Mor Morello and I, 
I've started a, a very uh, interesting discussion. Um, um, there's just a host. Um, and it's crazy how much stuff you're doing. <laughs> and yeah. I, I, you know, I publish articles uh, in journals. I get, I get, I give an invited talk at Cambridge on rationality and ritual. Um, there's a lot I'm doing. Um, I can do a lot because I'm also working with a lot of other brilliant and gifted people that really help me do this work in a profound and, and ongoing manner. So when you're doing all this stuff, like who's taking out your trash and making your bed and who, you, you have so many different projects going. So it seems just so, you know, daunting in our email, we were talking about it is like just listening to your 50 part series. You know, there were moments of fatigue because it's just, I haven't been exposed to, I guess it's a lecture, right? Was that a lecture you were doing at a school? Um, no, it was a bit, it was based on lectures I had done for three separate courses. The most okay. important course was a course on Buddhism and cognitive science. Another course was a course on the psychology of wisdom. And then there was another course on an introduction to cognitive science. And I was using all of those and, oh. and material and, and make, making this standalone project um, because I, I was seeing that all of my work was forming a foundation and the apex that it pointed towards was explaining and helping to uh, generate viable long-term responses to the meaning crisis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's um, as I was going through that process, so there are like moments of fatigue and uh, you know, like, okay, I gotta really power through some of these things. No offense, you're great, of course, but it's just That's like, so much for me it was like some parts are information overload and i realized there's so much gaps in my knowledge and like i was feeling the limitations of um you know my mastery over these topics so but before all of that i the reason i even heard of you was through uh, i was listening to an episode of jordan peterson's uh mm -hmm. podcast and um he i don't know how many you guys have done have you done more than one uh, we've done a couple. Uh, we we did one before he became stratospheric, right? Uh, uh, on meaning in life, just before, yeah. And then we did one with just him and I, and then we did one with him and I and Jonathan Pajot and Bishop Barron. Okay, and the one the one that I listened to was just you guys. Yeah, just I don't remember exactly which one that was, yeah. but he was definitely. It may have been an older episode, but it's how I, I was listening to them. And then most guests are cool and interesting, but you, your conversation in particular and your mission, I was like, oh, who, you know, who the hell is this John guy? I have okay. to look in. And then I look up and I'm like, oh my God, there's so much content. And then I jumped into the, the 50 part series. And then after doing all of that, uh, then I got your book, Zombies in Western Culture. And it, that, looks, that book was done before the 50 part series. Yes, the so, book was 2017, I believe. Yes. Yeah. So they complemented each other well and kind of reinforced some of the ideas that were completely new to me. Um, yeah. So anyways, it's just, it's tough. I recommended it, your, your series to people and they're like, oh, cool. I'll check it out. And they see it's 50, you know, 50 parts. <laughs> and then I just, based on their response, they're like, they're, they're not going to listen to it. <laughs> I listened to it on Spotify. I didn't even know it was a YouTube series until, um, probably about halfway through. Mm. So anyways, all of that, you know, that's kind of the basic stuff. So the overarching theme, I feel like you're saying is that um, we're in trouble. Western society, uh, 
this, it was weird. Actually, Jordan Peterson said it in one of his, his things that, you know, and especially during COVID, we were experiencing it, is that we take freedom for granted. We take a lot of the civil liberties we have for granted. And then, it, and then as I was listening to you and reading more of your stuff, it's that we take what Western society has built intellectually, and we, we've taken all of that for granted. And then it feels like it's imploding on itself. The scaffolding uh, you know, of what we, what we inherited feels like it's kind of falling apart. And maybe you, you know, you're noticing it. Maybe you feel like it's your responsibility to notice it, highlight it, and give some of these solutions. So do you kind of, do you, is that a good explanation of the summary of that series? Yeah, we're definitely in a crisis, um, and it's a crisis that affects us profoundly um, in terms of what we're capable of thinking. And I mean, I don't mean that in a trivial sense. I mean, in our ability to confront uh, new and daunting problems. So the, the idea is that the meaning crisis starves us for a central need of human cognition, which is the need for meaning. And, and while we're in that scarcity mentality, we lose a lot of the requisite uh, cognitive flexibility in order to come up with the radical new ways of reformulating our fundamental problems such that they become solvable. Um, so we're facing what Thomas Bjorgman calls the meta-crisis, interlocking sets of existential threats. Um, but my thesis, my, spe my specific thesis is Yes, but there's a reason why we're incapable of <clears throat> marshalling what we need to marshal in order to solve and address the metacrisis and what is actually enervating us and sort of draining us of the cognitive and existential resources we need in order to address uh, the metacrisis is the meaning crisis. So in that sense, uh, we are, yeah, we're in, we're, we're in a crisis, we're in a deep crisis. But do you feel like it's because it's at such a large scale and it's over a certain amount of time, do you feel like it's reversible or we're headed towards a wall and we're going to hit the wall and then there's going to be some kind of reset and we'll have to pick up the pieces there? Well, I mean, I don't think there's any kind of a saving teleology at work in the universe that's going to come and rescue us or anything like that. I do oh, think- Oh, no, no, nothing from the outside, but from the inside, like- Yes, do you feel yes. As a society we're able to turn the ship around now that it's i think it's a real out. i think it's still a real possibility i think we're at a kairos a, a real turning point that's why the title of the series is awakening from the meaning crisis i think there's a way individually and collectively we can awaken from the meaning crisis i see people in fact groups uh, individuals groups communities uh creating these uh, the ecologies of practices uh that will do this so I, I, I see the changes in scientific worldview that are now making possible a reconciliation between you know, the cultivation of human spirituality and science. All of these things are, 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 are not, I, I'm not saying we should start doing them. We're already doing them. They're already taking shape. Um, what I'm trying to do is provide a, a conceptual vocabulary and, and some kind of leadership and uh, mentorship and, and and being a liaison to build both uh, the theoretical framework, help build the theoretical framework, help build up the communities, help network them into um, a culture. Um, and it's a race. Um, that's how I see it. it, it, it we, that might work enough 
so that we get to the place where we have gone through the needed transformations in order to undertake trying to, well, save the world, to put it a little bit grandiosely. But yeah, yeah I yeah. do think it's, it's a real possibility. I think it's a race. It, but it's a race against the clock. It's a race against ourselves. It's a race against the clock. It's a race against ourselves. And it's also a race against deep patterns of socioeconomic, sociocultural organization that are thwarting uh, what we need to do in order to bring about the requisite change. I'm not talking about some cabal or conspiracy. I'm talking about we have lots of very powerful systems of social and cultural and economic interaction in place that shape our cognition and shape our culture in ways that make it difficult for us to transform our cognition and our culture such that we can awaken from the meaning crisis and address the meta crisis with the deep kind of transformative seriousness that is needed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So at the at the end of your series, I was hoping for a now do X Y Z, you know, you yes, know. I, I was uh, like, okay. When I was in episode halfway through episode fifty, I'm like, here we go, baby, drum roll. And all you have to do is one, two, and three X Y Z, right? And then we've solved the problem. So right. is it? It's something that you feel. What do people need to do individually? What do groups need to do? Because um, yeah, I, I agree with most, if not all of the things you're identifying, you know, and clearly you're yeah. thinking about it way more than I am. But um, as I was, you know, I'm listening to, I'm reading it. I'm like, I almost feel like, God, if we can't turn this thing around, that's a major problem. You know, we take things for granted. Yeah. Um, it almost started to feel like maybe it's a moral imperative to come up with artificial intelligence. Maybe that's the next step that we need to get to. Like, what that we need to, like a bigger mission we need like a bigger next step that kind of felt like that's what's missing when you're talking about christianity is like kind of falling apart and the nuns which you talk about in in the book you know there's a group that's really not identified is having trouble identifying itself with a bigger group a bigger mission some kind of framework so how does somebody deal with that individually let's say well, individually, I, I think what people need to do is, and I talked about this, right, um, they, need, they need to create uh, and commit to an ecology of practices. Um, so um, a, a way to get into this is to th this, this basic proposition. I give lots of argument for it, so I'll just put it out as a proposal, that the very complex dynamics that make us intelligently adaptive are the same processes that make us susceptible to self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior. Right. And so we need, we need practices, but not, there's no one panacea practice. We need practices that, um, we, we have to find practices who have complementary sets of strengths and weaknesses and create like an ecology. You know, the, in an ecology, all these organisms are checks and balances and affording and, right, and constraining each other and the, and the whole thing is constantly evolving and shaping itself to the environment. So you need, you need to come up with sets of complementary uh, practices that have that the requisite complexity and capacity for dynamic self-organization to address the complexity of human cognition. Um, so let me just try and give you a couple examples to make this more concrete. Okay. So one of the things, if you, if you want to, really 
overcome self-deception and improve the kind of connectedness that gives you a sense of meaning in life. One way, one thing you need to do is you need to pay attention to how you are finding things salient and relevant. And, and of course, there are ways of doing this. And of course, mindfulness is big right now. And right, so people can say, oh, I'll just practice meditation. Well, the problem with that is that's not paying very good attention to attention. Uh, meditation is a practice in which you step back. I often use this as analogy. Uh, this is my mental framing. This is how I'm focusing my attention. My glasses are an analogy for that. And I, have, I sometimes I need to step back and look at rather than look through my mental framing. That's meditation. It's You need it. Well, that's all you need. Well, no, because you even think of the analogy. How do I know that, that maybe I think that there's some dirt on here and I clean it? How do I know if I've actually cleaned my glasses? Well, you know what I need to do? I need to put them on and see if I now see more clearly or more deeply than I did before. Right. So I need to balance the meditative practice, which is doing this, with a contemplative practice, which is doing this. And I need to know how to constantly use the one to check the other. Right. Well, oh my, oh, they're dirty. Oh, I can see more clearly. Oh, if I can see more clearly, right, then, uh, right, that allows me to understand better how I can make use of my, my lenses, etc. So, and then you say, okay, so I need a meditative and a contemplative practice and counterbalancing each other. Well, the, the thing is, both meditative and contemplative practices tend to shut off your inferential machinery, you, the, the machinery by which you make these, you know, step-by-step -step inferential arguments that you do in science, for example. And that's because you're trying to enhance the insight machinery. And you go, oh, that's always good, right? So I should, I'll always practice meditation and contemplation. Well, wait, when you like it, you call it an insight. When you don't like it, that it is the same machinery, you call it leaping to a conclusion, mm -hmm. right? And so like, I'll give you an example. I use this example frequently. Here's a pond, there's a lily pad on it. Every day, the number of lily pads doubles. On the 20th day, the pond is completely covered. On what day was it half covered? And most people leap to the, oh, day 10. But the answer I is day this 19. Example. I remember it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, day 19. Right. Okay. Before, so you yeah. leap to a conclusion. That's the same machinery, that cognitive leaping. When you like it, it's an insight. When you don't like it, it's leaping to a conclusion. So you need another practice that does the reverse. Sometimes you need a practice that shuts off the inferential stuff so the insight stuff can come into prominence. But sometimes you need to dampen this so that you don't leap to conclusions while you're making your inferences. You need a, a, pro a practice called active open-mindedness, something that you see a lot of in Stoicism. I'm trying to show you how all of these, right? And, and then you go, okay, so I have a mindfulness practice. I have meditation and contemplation. And then the mindfulness practice is in, right, is in balance with active open-mindedness. Am I done? No, I'll say to you, because all of those are seated practices and you also need to have a movement practice to counterbalance. And you see how it builds out and you build out an ecology of practice, making good use of the best cognitive science out there and the best traditions that have generated these practices and you put it together. And you put it together in a way that challenges you to overcome your biases. And then you wanna complement those individual practices with group practices, dialogical practices, philosophical fellowship practices, because 
we 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 are the best correctors of each other's biases. The the best way to overcome your egocentrism is by genuinely listening and taking the perspective of another person. And so you build out dialogical and you, you see how this is going. That and that's what it takes. And then you say, okay, I get that. But what am I most concerned with? Well, you're concerned with the kinds of patterns of self-deception that human beings reliably fall into. And you want to learn about that. You want to, you know, why do we fall prey to absurdity? I try to answer that in the series. Why do we fall prey to despair? Um, why do we do go into depression cycles? Why do we go, why do we spin off in anxiety? These are all things that you know, you, you try and answer and you have to, you have to realize, oh, wow, we get into these things because our, co our cognition is so complex and self-organizing and we need this complex counteractive dynamical system to address that complexity. And then what you realize is, you know, again, you have to do this individually and collectively. You can't just sort of practice ecologies of practices. You need, you need to be able to, to give them a, a home a sense of how they fit into your worldview, your model of reality. And that means you need to do a lot of work trying to integrate these ecology of practices into the dominant scientific technological worldview. And I try and show people how to do that. And sorry, that's a long answer, but the question you asked me is the pivotal question. Yeah, so when I'm, yeah, thank you, is, okay, me, I listen to your thing, I read your book, I totally agree, now what? you know, and you have these options, but there's no school, there's no church that's offering some formula, at least some parameters. It's you have here, you can go over to a, you know, go meditate here. You can, you know, for me, it's like, you should meditate and you should do something, some physical combat, you know, yes. Like, yes. like MMA or jujitsu. So it's like, to me, you have to do both. I have three kids going on four kids and i'm congratulations oh thank you yeah is but so every day i'm thinking am i failing the kids by not just starting my own school because it's like i love waldorf i love outdoor i love nature and forest and all, all of that's great but i also want them to build computers and work on motors i want them to know how to sing but i want them to know how to fight you know it's all of these things and then but also like what's the overarching principles of this you know, make believe school where I'm, I'm rapidly losing time. My daughter's eight. So it's like, you know, I can keep ruminating on what is this thing, this structure, but it's like, I kind of, you know, I need to either influence the school that they're at, which is like a small private school, or I just need to start my own thing. It's so daunting. So there's, it is anyone trying to take these ideas and say, Hey, here it is. Come join yes. us. Yes, very much. So, I mean, first of all, uh, uh, I mean, I, I also had, did an online course during COVID where I taught people meditation, contemplation, and moving practices, then took them through the Western wisdom tradition, Epicureanism, Stoicism, Neoplatonism. That's all online. That's all available for people free. It's there if you want it. Um, and I'm not, I'm not, other than the minimal kind of advertising that might come around it, I don't get anything from it. Right. So I, there's, I'm not trying to form any kind of cult or uh, you won't be, you won't be getting up and writing checks to me at 3am or anything. Yeah. Right. So there's that, but I'm also in constant conversation with people are, who are doing exactly what you said. 
Uh, you might have seen I've had an ongoing set of conversations with Rafe Kelly. He has built such an ecology of practices, Evolve, Move, Play, in which you're doing parkour, in, and he teaches you how to do it. He does, right? You're doing parkour in nature, but you're also doing uh, rough housing. You're doing martial arts. Um, you're, you're doing sit-sitting. Um, you're doing dialogical practices, campfire uh, narrative. You're, he's got it. There's an ecology of practices. Uh, Benita Roy is generating an ecology of practices. Zach Stein is talking about how we can reformulate education in a time between two worlds where we get education being about intergenerational transfer rather than just preparation for the market. There, there's a lot of people. So a lot of my work is not just doing the theorizing or helping to train people in specific practices. A lot of my work now working with other people like Nathan Vanderpool and others is how do we get all of these communities to talk to each other, help each other, vet each other, and form a community of communities? That's happening right now. And I talk to people that come from other cultures. Um, I, I talk to Jonas what it, Slovic, uh, from the Denmark folk high school system. They, where after high school, you go to the folk high school, bad name, uh, but you basically do you, you, it's like you go to a secular monastery and you do you work on wisdom and self-knowledge and the teachers are there facilitating that and this is funded by the government oh and so oh it is it's funded by the government because it's part of what's called the scandinavian miracle the nordic secret they you know they they set up all of these sort of secular monasteries a century or so ago to do this kind of thing and they transform themselves from authoritarian ag agrarian societies into what they are today there's problems with the Scandinavian countries. I'm not saying they're utopia, but I'm saying, wow, that really, it, like that's proof of concept. Mm -hmm. So I'm doing a lot to not just generate the theory or just generate courses of practice. I'm doing a lot to try and facilitate emerging communities <clears throat> and, excuse me, and constellate them together into a viable culture. This is what I mean by steal the culture. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't mean to imply that you weren't doing any of that, that it was just highfalutin theorizing that you're doing. For me, it was just like, where is now what? Like, where oh, do no, we, no. Where I, do, I, you know, yeah. where do I go? Like, John, you, uh, you put a lot, you, you've identified the problem. You've stressed me out. I'm feeling it. I agree. What should be my next step? You know, and so, so good, I, mean, I don't have to join your cult, but what, you know, <laughs> where is the, where's the building I go to? to like connect uh, with people how do how would people listen to your stuff read your stuff hey i'm in los angeles now where do i go is it all going to be online is there something like where is oh no, you could do you could i mean i think it's full now uh there's some there's some stuff you can do online so guy senstock and chris master petro and i we run well, weekend workshops where we teach we take people through a pedagogical program we teach you some basic meditation some contemplation some circling practice some philosophical fellowship and then dialectic into dialogos. We're probably going to be adding in some shadow work in there, right? That's available. That is, we do that. We're going to be doing one in July, but you could physically go, although I think it's sold out to Rafe Kelly's uh, return to the source retreat at the end of July, which is a week of doing exactly all those things I talked to you about. Mm -hmm. um, they, they, are, uh, they are trying to set up in the United States. I don't know where yet, I have to talk to Jonas again. Um, they're trying to set up something in the United States equivalent to the, the uh, you know, the Danish folk high schools. Um, 
I I am trying. Like I'm going down at the end of June to the Emerge Conference, where we're getting a lot of the people who are doing all this work that I'm, and many of them I mentioned. And we're all going to be in one place, and it's trying to get okay. How do we take the step forward? Yeah. Um, so there's a, a lot. Uh, one of the things we want to do, David, to really address when I think you in a very practical manner is. We want to get these various communities to create a, a sort of a virtual uh, commons, a virtual space where there are people who have been trained in, you know, uh, the various communities and they can act as facilitators when people come in and just want to get introduced and then say, well, you seem to be more oriented this way. Go, go, you know, join uh, Benita Roy or go. Oh, so maybe uh, you have different routes. Yes, so yes, yes. To basically facilitate however that person needs to learn. So you have to different, choose your own adventures for this stuff. Yes, but not, but, but not just, yeah, choose your own adventures, but like with, with, with effective and hopefully well-vetted guidance. Uh, that is a project we're, we're, we're working uh, towards. Um, and it's uh, a lot of this, this is what I mean by a race. A lot of this is we're trying to figure out how to do this without it getting immediately captured and commodified and twisted uh, like uh, like everything else. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and so I, I think there's a lot more in available to you on what's, what Sevilla King calls this corner of the internet. Mm -hmm. uh, there's, a lot, there's a lot more of these communities. I have a Discord server uh, with a community that's putting together an ecology of practices. Paul Vanderclay has what he calls estuary, in which he's trying to get people inside the church and outside the church uh, to talk, to genuinely learn how to relearn how to talk to each other. Uh, right. Like I said, um, many of these places you can actually physically go and learn. Uh, do you think it's more valuable, though, and more effective to do it in person? Yes, where it's possible. Uh, a lot of this stuff we can't do in person, like when Zach, sorry, when, when Guy and Chris and I, Chris and I both live in Toronto, but Guy lives in California. Uh, and so we, we, we end up doing it virtually. Um, we, I've done a couple uh, of these things in person and it makes a huge difference. It really does. But it doesn't mean that the, the virtual stuff is not good. It is good and we're working hard to make it better. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you think that would be, yeah, to, that would be practical next steps is to find these communities, get more involved in that. Yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. Cause it's like, you have got meditation. You even talked about for maybe one of the one or two of the episodes, uh, psychedelics. Yes. I really I appreciate it. It was like, it's yeah. not that you, you know, basically I think what you're saying, correct me if I'm wrong is you're not downloading data from the universe. You know, yeah, some people yeah. may argue, but you're reconfiguring what's already in there and loosening things up and and shifting the way you're yes. viewing things. And, yes. that's, and that's good and beautiful too. And that's really helpful. Yeah, it's not so much about getting arcane knowledge. It's about starting the progression towards wisdom. I would recommend, uh, I, I, like I, I'm against prohibition on psychedelics, but I'm also against the recreational use of mm -hmm. psychedelics or the individual use psychedelics a, a good analogy is psychedelics are like chainsaws they allow you to really transform things but you wouldn't just give a chainsaw to somebody and say hey go play with this and just do what you want with it 
Um, I played with a lot of chains, chainsaws uh, unsupervised. So I know what you're saying. Yes. It, can, yeah. it could be um, a very negative experience. Yes. Yeah. Very and, and you, and you don't want that. Yeah. That wouldn't be the yeah. point. So I agree it should be handled more. And then, but then the other thing is, you know, cause I'm in LA. So I feel like at times it's the Mecca of wokeness and yes. yoga and health yeah. nuts and vegans. Yeah. And I appreciate all of that stuff, but it all goes so far too far. Yes. And other times it's just like, I feel when I'm interacting with a lot of the people around me, because I've been moving. Um, I, as I am learning more about this stuff, I'm 39. I have kids. I'm getting older. I'm in LA. I feel like I am shifting more conservative in yes. some of how I see society. It's very weird and alarming because yeah. a lot of my <laughs> other friends are like moving towards ultra liberalism, you know, like, and so, and I, you know, like I, well, whatever, we don't have to get into that too much, but there's a shifting that's happening, but I feel like, like go and like physically fight people. There's value in that. Like go into, and you know, I know Brazilian jiu-jitsu is becoming popular, you know, more and more popular. I, I did karate, so I'm, I didn't, I would never have done karate now that I've done jujitsu. So mm -hmm. there's a point of like, yeah, meditate, maybe do. Do a martial art. I definitely agree. Psychedelics, I, but also yeah. go on a mat and fight somebody physically. There's also that value, but it seems like all of them are all in their own silos. It's very that's rare. That's exactly that doing all of it. Yes. That's exactly the point, David. That's exactly the point when I'm, when I'm trying to propose to you this idea of an ecology of practices. Exactly. Mm. And the silos tend to be, they tend to have too high an opinion of themselves. They right. tend to think that they alone are the panacea to all of humanity's problems. Not everybody, but this is a frequent enough thing that you, you want, you want the, the dynamic correction that you get from an ecology of practices. Okay, so one thing you mentioned is like a cult of personality, a cult kind of thing. What I noticed during COVID, tell me if you saw anything like this as well. I, the, um, the veneer of society was much thinner than I thought. Yes. And the, the power of fear is significantly more powerful than I could never have expected. I thought we were in 20, you know, what, 2019, 2020. Yeah. Right. Through these last years, I thought we, hey, we should be invincible to these kind of fears and manipulation. And it, and it was like, oh my God, are we more vulnerable than ever? Yes. And I thought these last two years with COVID, I ran in the the California recall, and um, because I really didn't like what was going on with the mandates, and I, I kind of felt like, hey, I need to go on the record. I'm against these things. But right. a lot of people, you know, I lost a lot of friends and some family because of my positions on these things. But I thought, God, if there's a sociopath sitting in his house watching COVID play out in America, they might be encouraged to like seize power. Like this is a crazy thought, but I was yeah. just like, God, somebody insane be like, oh my God, it's so easy through fear to completely take over a society. It was like so weird for, you know, we're in 2022. We should be immune to this kind of thing. I don't know what are your, some, it's soft tangent, but what are your thoughts on some of this stuff? No, I mean, uh, I, I, I remember I was, I was, and I was just talking to David Fuller about this. I was on Rebel Wisdom just as COVID was coming in. And I said, you're going to get an explosion of conspiracy thinking, and it's going to have this religious tone to it mm -hmm. all over the place on both sides, left and right. And, yeah. and then Jules Evans later brought out the term conspirituality, and, and that took off in a profound way. 
Um, people were throwing back, right? We, we, we sort of lead live, the epidemic of narcissism, we'd lead live. How is this relevant to me? How is this relevant to me? And then we're thrown into COVID and the person you got to spend all the time with is me. And you realize, oh, there's no depth of self-knowledge here. Um, and I'm just overwhelmed by impulses and, and, and I feel at a loss. I feel disconnected from reality. Many people describe their state of mind during COVID and all the lockdowns as surreal. Um, but compare that to the Christian monks who could go into the desert for years on end in solitude. Why, why are they able to do that reliably? And we, like, you know, a couple months in and people are freaking out. And it's mm -hmm. like, you have to think about what that shows you about how much you are unaware, like the glasses are transparent. You don't, uh, you're not aware. You, you're, you don't have the knowledge of your meaning making machinery. And therefore like my glasses, because I'm not aware of how I'm wearing them, they can be broken and I don't realize that they're broken very, very easily. They're fragile. And so I think what one of, I, I, one of the things that has come out of COVID is people realizing that, I mean, that's why you're seeing the great resignation and a, uh, on one hand, but you're seeing the spike in uh, mental illness uh, on the other hand, because what's happening is people are realizing, oh, wow, this meaning-making machinery is actually really important. And I have not paid a lot of attention to it. We, we have, we've made this fundamental mistake of self-knowledge. We have been satisfied with our autobiographies. And the kind of no self-knowledge we need is not an autobiography. This, I get this idea from Socrates. The kind of self-knowledge we need is mu something much more like your owner's manual. How do you work? How do you function? Not, don't tell me your story. Tell me how you function. Do you have that kind of self-knowledge? Because what you find, what people found in COVID is, right, their autobiographies were inadequate for giving them deep resources of resiliency and adaptivity for an unexpected sudden change in their environment. So you feel like the two main responses, I don't disagree, were either it was depressing, yes. right? It was very depressing for people, or it was a little bit of an awakening, like I'm not gonna go back to this lame job. Yes. Like, you, yeah. you know, I'm over it. Why am I even doing this? It was a moment of reflection temporarily. They paused yeah. and they're like, hey, you know, I'm an accountant, I'm gonna go be a musician now. You know, like there was those yes. shifts that happened. Yes, but, but other that. than that, it's like what you know. On a yeah, I just feel like there were other lessons that the fear thing is what really scared them. Scares well, them. Well, see, it's, it was, I felt like it was weaponized a lot. Well, there's that, but it's a specific kind of fear, right? Um, what what happens is it's a kind of fear that triggers people into a mythological way of thinking. So think about what COVID does, right? COVID says there's. Uh, a ubiquitous invisible threat it's out there you're being now you're, you're you're losing most of your connections you're being locked in right you have to practice all this purity code you're, it's like you're suddenly thrown into the world the mythological world of the old testament right? right and so people started thinking very archetypally right and stuff comes up out of the unconscious trying to find a pattern in the chaos and that, that this is how this is why conspiracies, again, left and right, are both are, are so attractive to us because they 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 come from a deep part of the unconscious 
and they look like they are making sense of everything. And that's why it's so, this is what one thing so many people are reporting. They're saying so many of my friends went kind of crazy during, during COVID. And, and, and it's like, because you can't, you can't sort of slam into people's meaning making machinery like COVID did. Well, the culture is already in a long-standing meaning crisis. COVID was just like pouring gas on an already lit fire. And, it, it, and what happens is the meaning crisis isn't just meaning. It, it affects mental health. It affects, it, it affects your sociability. It affects your ability to understand and interpret the past. All, it's like I said, when you're starving for meaning, you get very limited and restricted in how you try and find meaning and you get very desperate in it. And that's what happened. That's what happened. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, yeah, scary. Yeah. So, all right. Well, I think we're kind of saying some of the same things on that. You know, this, just shifting from COVID to zombies, there was zombie behavior during COVID, which was weird. There was zombie behavior during COVID. And of course, there was a lot of zombie behavior before COVID. And Oh, and, for sure. Yeah, and, even, and, and ironically, I always use the example. So when I was reading the book, I thought, oh, that's funny. Is I say, when COVID first started, we didn't know if it was going to be a zombie apocalypse. If yes. you saw people turning into zombies, you'd be wearing a mask, you'd be keeping six feet apart, like there'd be automatic things you'd be yes. doing. So it was a weirder experience because we, you know, we were, we didn't know what was going to happen, right? So it's like, we've seen the movies and we've been teed up to this obsession with yes. zombie apocalypse and they've been going, switching to your book. They've been weirdly blended and now they don't want to separate. It's one and that, that David, that's a, that's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. We've got, we, we've got the myth of the zombie because that's what it is. And it's, yeah. and as we argue in the book, it's, it's basically the myth of the meaning crisis. The zombie has all these features that yeah. point to features of the meaning crisis. And then the, the separate myth of revelation and apocalypse and the end of the world. And then they find each other and merge into the zombie apocalypse. And then people invoke that to try and make sense of what's happening in COVID. That's exactly what I'm talking about. That's about that mythological thinking that is already being generated by the meaning crisis. And then suddenly people turn to it and try and use it to try and make sense of what's happening during COVID. Exactly. That's exactly what I'm talking about. And now that you don't feel like that thing is ever going to go away. There were already pre, you know, it's already, it's built into our wiring to yearn for these kind of these stories, the, yes. these, these things, yes. whether or not they're correct, you know? So it's like similar to, it sounds like you don't believe there will be a new religion that's so influential that it wraps all the other religions together. We've moved past that phase as well. Uh, these, I'll, these, I'll, I'll I'll tell you, I'm actually proposing what I call the religion that's not a religion, mm -hmm. in that what we're trying to do is understand as deeply as we can, and as respectfully as we can, by the way, how all of these religions were viable ecologies of practices and had a particular worldview that homed those ecologies. What can we learn from all of them such that we can come up with something that isn't bound to their particular mythological framework, but nevertheless has the proper functionality to address the meaning crisis right now. So I do think we need something like the religion that is not a religion. We need something that says, well, how did, they, how did these ecologies and practices work? How did they help people overcome self-deception? 
connection? How did they help people connect to themselves, to each other and to the world? How did they help establish the relationship between individuals and communities? How, how, how? And then can we build such an ecology that does not require people to nostalgically return to one of the world religions? I'm not saying people sh shouldn't, right? I'm not saying that. Yeah, I had a personal experience. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. I, 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 neither should they do that, nor should the, they be promised a utopia that is going to resolve uh, forever and for always uh, these kinds of perennial problems. Uh, so we have to resist the temptation of those totalizing narratives. No, no, just return, nostalgia. Just go forward into this utopia. We need a religion that's not a religion that can be re can be reconciled with the scientific worldview as it is going through, I believe right now, an important revolution. And that also helps us avoid the temptations of nostalgia and utopia. But I do think this is possible for us. And I do think it it's a real possibility and people are already doing it. The question is, again, it's a race. But, and it's also very, uh, it's fractured. Everything's fractured and... So there's not, you don't think there's going to be one big thing. One, there's not going to be a religion like past religions that comes no. out of nowhere and rolls it all up and we're back. For no. some reason, it worked in the past. It won't work now, right? We're too what? Why does it, why would it not happen again? Where because there's a religion that came out of nowhere and just swept everyone off their heels and now everyone's religious again. Well, you have to remember that these religions also often piggybacked on shared overlap with pre-existing religions or they were able to use shared intellectual philosophical frameworks like Neoplatonism along the Silk Road. And we don't have either one of those uh, readily available because of globalization, because of pluralism, uh, a bunch of historical fit feature factors that I go into in the series. Um, but what we can do, and this is the, the point about a religion of not a religion, it's we don't all have to be practicing the same ecology you could be doing jujitsu and vipassana and maybe this element from stoicism. Somebody else could be saying, no, no, like I'm doing Tai Chi Chuan and I'm integrating that with this meditative practice and I'm new, using Neoplatonic contemplation. Like, so we don't try, it, I, I, I try to use the, uh, the analogy of evolution. Um, we have a universal process of evolution that doesn't mean that all the products are homogeneously the same. In fact, evolution predicts that all of the products were, are, will be very different from each other, even though they're produced by the same process. So we can use the same, we can all share in the same design features, the design principles, the understanding of that balancing, that complementarity, but that doesn't mean the content and, 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 and the particular functional components have to all be identical. We can have a process unity rather than a product unity. But, and, but you're thinking of, because you're wanting to get it under one, all under one umbrella of something, but then there's these different practices that yes. are all accomplishing this overarching goal. Yes, exactly. So it, it's, it's, much more, it's much more a self-organizing culture than it is a hierarchical um, singular institution. And you think that that's the only probable and will be the only effective way to address this? I think so. And I, because that's how it's emerging. And I think that's how it should emerge. Yeah, uh, yeah. Because we need, what we most need is intelligent complexity. 
We need a, 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 we need a complexification of our individual and collective cognition in order to deal with the rapidly accelerating complexity of the environment and the problems we face. Mm -hmm. The way you complexify is you diversify while integrating and you integrate while you diversify. And I'm proposing to you a model of religion that's not religion that is inherently self-complexifying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so there's that. And then, um, yeah, it's okay. Yeah, I hear what you're saying with that. Now, the one other thing that I didn't notice in it is that, and you talk about it a little bit, is you feel like Western society is dealing with this problem. You don't feel like other major societies are dealing with this problem. It's a problem specific to us, or do you feel like it's with the world, with globalization, it's gonna be, it's a universal problem? So I think with globalization, it will increasingly become a universal problem. I have good, I, I, I have good reason to believe that something analogous is going on in China and Japan. Uh, because I talk to people, but part of the reason why I didn't comment on other areas um, uh, uh, is because just of ignorance. I, I, I just didn't have the knowledge. Uh, so where I'm ignorant, I try to remain silent. Uh, yeah. I, I think it's because given China and what's happening in China and Japan, um, I think it's plausible that globalization will spread this um, around the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As a solution for them. Yes. In those societies. Okay, cool. Yeah. I, if you don't mind one last question, just to kind of wrap it up. That's fine, David. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I like to, I like to ask, uh, yeah. sci-fi wise, um, one for AI, do you think there will be a world in the future where we'll have issues like Terminator? Do you think we'll get AI to that level? Is that a problem? A lot of people are afraid of AI. It seems yeah, to be so evolution and a, a requirement that we do, if we know how to do it, we should do it, but it's dangerous. So, I mean, a lot of the work I do as a cognitive scientist is actually uh, around the question of AI. Um, so it, 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 the idea of AI that's just sort of a cold logical computer, I think that's largely not, that's not where the field's going. We're going into hybrid machines that combine computers with neural networks and recursive things and predictive processing. And more and more, um, these things will have to have something analogous to emotion. Emotion is not an add-on. It is an integral part of being a cognitive agent. Um, these, these things to be genuinely uh, intelligent, they have to be able to make meaning for themselves. So they have to have something and they have to not only be artificially intelligent, they have to be artificially alive in a really uh, important sense. Um, and, and then in addition to making them artificially intelligent, we need to be making them artificially rational and potentially capable of artificial wisdom. Intelligence is only weakly predict in human beings is only weakly predictive of rationality about 0.3 correlation. And so um, we need to be making um, artificial rationality and artificial wisdom, which means we can't we have to also become more rational and wise ourselves uh, so that we can act as templates. We're great templates for intelligence where we need to become really good templates of rationality and wisdom because we need to give those, these abilities as well to machines. Mm -hmm. um, Do you think it's it, that it will be doable, that yes. humans will create machines that are what you're describing? Yes, if, uh, if, if, we're, if we're creating machines that have sort of AGI, genuine right. artificial rationality, are bound up with artificial life in a meaningful sense, 
And they're not, not only individual, capable of individual cognition, but capable of distributed cognition. Uh, I, 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 I think some of my work, some of the stuff I'm publishing is helping to make that possible. I do think that's not like going to happen tomorrow or in 10 years. I think more like 30 or 40 years. And I think, and this is, I think we'll face a more important existential issue before the advent of that kind of AI, which is the ongoing way in which we will cyborg ourselves. Yeah, that was ongoing, what I, yeah, I, was, yeah. I totally agree with that. Is It seems like, you know, rather than, it's, it seems much easier with like a company like Neuralink yes. that we can maybe um, improve, hijack the human brain and just yeah. amp it up to a level we've never seen before before we're able to create, you know, a Dell computer it. into AGI. Yeah. It seems like a quicker path to that kind yeah. of thing. But yeah, that's I, dangerous. Yes, that is very dangerous. There's already some preliminary research that when you combine some of the best AIs, like, uh, you know, AlphaGo or something with human beings, the combination of the human being and the AI does better than either the human being or the AI on its own. So there's a synergistic effect which will make plausible the promise of cyborgs. And of course, we are natural born cyborgs. Look at all the machines that we are already, I'm wearing glasses, I'm wearing clothes, we're speaking mm -hmm. through computers, right? Mm -hmm. All of this stuff. Um, so I, I, I think that is something that is going to definitely appear probably in my lifetime and your lifetime or what's left of my lifetime, I should say. And, and it's gonna be the first serious issue your kids and my kids face. So do you- Way Way before is there a company that you feel like is leading the pack into this world? I don't think there's a, a uh, I mean, DeepMind is doing a lot of important work. Um, I don't think there's a singular company. I think there's a lot. I think right now, still, most of the progress is happening in the academic world. Okay. Yeah, because it seems whoever becomes the first cyborg is going to have a very unhealthy advantage over the rest of society. It's so weird. Okay. Okay. Final, final. Okay. Do you prefer Star Trek, Star Wars? Why? <laughs> I don't. I, I like either. Their... No, no, both. I am a deep devotee of both for very different reasons. Um, and this comes, I was brought up in third generation sci-fi, people like Roger Zelazny, where you played on the border between science fiction and science fantasy. And for me, Star Wars is the science fantasy side and Star Trek, at least some of the Star Treks, um, um, is trying to be much more on the science fiction side. And right. so I like, I, like, I like both of them for very different reasons. Of course, with you, 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 could, you could take Star Wars, and I mean, it came out of you know, Jack Kurosawa, Japanese movies. You could move it into a medieval fantasy world with magic, and it would be basically the same story. You can't really do that so much with Star Trek. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Cool. All right. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time, John. It's been a pleasure, David. Thank you yeah. very much. I'm glad we were able to finally connect and make this happen. I know. It was really tough. We had to do it for society, though. So we <laughs> pushed through. All right. Cool. I appreciate it. Thanks, John. Take good care. Okay. Bye. Bye.